following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Every religious tradition teaches that the soul has a decision to make. We have the opportunity in our lifetime, in our moment-to-moment experience, to either enter a new superior way of being, a spiritual way of being, or to enter deeper states of suffering. This is determined by our actions, what we do, the conscious or unconscious motivations that drive us, or the decisions that we make. This dichotomy has been represented, especially within the Abrahamic traditions, but also within the East, as the battle of the soul in the work of achieving its own full, conscious, divine realization. We have a choice. Two paths open up before those who sincerely wish to know the divine. And if you've been studying the sequence of these lectures in this course, we've been talking a lot about the Gnostic mythology, especially Sophia. Sophia, we see represented here. This image is Parsifal and Kundri. Medieval iconography that represent the same Gnostic myth of how the soul, the fallen Sophia, must be redeemed. She is our soul, our consciousness, which when it is elevated, purified, sanctified, becomes the receptacle of Christ, the Holy Grail, the divine chalice that receives superior knowledge and can express it selflessly to humanity. Sophia in us is fallen. We do not know divinity at our current level, if we are honest, if we examine our mind and our heart and the daily problem of suffering, our psychological states, 
However, the soul, the consciousness, can experience that which is known as redemption, which is a state of being free of suffering, in which the soul is fully unified with the divine. But in that process, we must be like Percival, Parsifal, the knight, the warrior, the great hero which fights in the path of love, who goes to war against his own impurity, his own weaknesses, his own mistakes. These two figures we see represented here represent the marriage of the soul with the wisdom of Christ, the Christic energy, that cosmic, universal, and abstract potential which can become human, particularized within any initiate who is properly prepared. This woman has been known by many names, Kundri, especially within Wagner's opera Parsifal. Kundri, Sophia, must also redeem her lover. This warrior is, if we use the Kabbalistic tradition, represents Tiferet, the divine will. The will to do, to work for the spirit, to enact positive superior action. We see here that while he is drinking from a chalice, he is looking in contemplation deeply at the sword. The sword and the chalice are profoundly sexual symbols. And as we're going to elaborate in this lecture, the paths of temptation and redemption have a sexual trope. They also relate to the nature of our psychology. What behaviors in us produce happiness or sorrow. And so we're going to explain what temptation is, what redemption is, what the path is. It's also important to reflect upon the nature of these two souls joined in sacred union. This woman is known in Kabbalah as Geburah. The term means justice the justice of divinity, the Martian spiritual strength of the soul, the divine soul. And she is married to her knight, her husband, her hero. Together, they must face great ordeals and challenges. And by overcoming their own innate weaknesses, their own desires, they can aspire towards higher ways of being superior knowledge. It's important to clarify what temptation is. Salman Vior states the following maxim in many of his writings. Temptation is fire. Triumph over temptation is light. What is fire? In a psychological sense, in a sexual sense, it is desire. It is wanting, attachment, craving. What I want, what I need, what I crave. 
Desire has many forms, whether for food, for water, for drink, for alcohol, for sex, for drugs. For some people, their desires are for attention, praise, recognition, fame, titles, security, money. Desire is a fire. It burns. It consumes one's entire being. The wood of our soul from the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, metaphorically, symbolically speaking. How many of us in our lifetime are driven precisely by desire, by the wanting for something more, for accumulation? If you examine this metaphor, it directly represents something very profound. How in our striving to fulfill our desires in life, we in fact suffer. The word passion originally means suffering. In our Western culture, we tend to ignore this fact. We believe and are taught that by following our desires, we will be happy. And yet we ignore that fulfilling or seeking to fulfill these very drives are precisely what create confusion and pain. If we don't get what we want, we suffer. When we get what we want, we want more. Desire is a flame. It is never satiated. It is like a holocaust, which for many of us, defines our very existence. It's also important to remember that by feeding desire, by giving our appetites, our cravings, our longings for acceptance and praise, for security and money, that our desires will never be satisfied. Even if we had all the wealth a materialism that could really gratify our greatest yearnings, we will not be happy. We will want more. And therefore, feeding desire will only make it stronger. Like throwing clarified butter into a flame, it becomes more extreme. And this explains why many people who acquire more and more in life tend to acquire even greater things, and yet they degenerate into great pain. Is it not true of this metaphor that when the, when the fire dies, it becomes snuffed out? We are left with smoke, the aftermath, the taste, the bitterness, the emptiness. The same applies to sexual experience. Most importantly, when sexual desire is satisfied, when the fire of sex is snuffed out through the orgasm. What happens is that the couple seeking to return to that state crave more and more sensations. And therefore, they end up in greater sorrow. However, it is true that the very fire that animates our being, which can give us drive, an impetus and direction in life, 
can also be transformed into something superior and divine. Something sacred. It is true that from fire comes light. Wisdom, understanding. From the fire of the creative sexual potential emerges the potential of redemption. Because that fire, that energy, that force to create can be harnessed with intelligence. Now, it's important to remember too that our desires, our cravings, attachments, our wantings, our egotism can also be transformed, can be transmuted from one substance into another, into one form and into another, from one state into a superior state. This is the mystery of alchemy, the transformation of a base substance into a divine and spiritual material, from lead, the denseness of personality and suffering, into the gold of spirit. But the question becomes, how do we do it? We do so through ordeals. It is necessary to face sufferings and challenges in life. What's important is that as we are practicing the tools and techniques of this tradition, as we're learning to practice meditation, concentration, understanding, imagination exercises, runic practices, other forms of yoga, mantras, sacred sounds, we have to remember that we must face hardships with serenity. We must face them with calmness of mind. This is because when the waters of the mind are churning in, with despair, with morbidity, with passion, no image can reflect on its surface. However, when the surface is calm, limpid, cool, translucent, it reflects the heavens. Also, the elements of the mind settle. You begin to see things with greater clarity, with greater wisdom, with intuition, with insight. When we have serenity of mind, we can better apprehend the source of our pain because we will have enough stability of mindfulness, of attention, by which to see clearly within our own psychological nature. However, this is a paradox. How is it that we must be serene and calm, perceiving directly within our own inner nature, and yet must face crises? It seems contradictory. How could we be in crisis? Or why do we need to be in, a, in certain ordeals? And yet we must be serene. This is because when you have a basis of understanding within the consciousness, when you're observing yourself throughout the day, as you're looking within at the secret motives of your impulses, your thoughts, your emotional states, you begin to see things. But you can't see the real deep-rooted problems and the wrong mental states if we don't have situations that provoke them. We need to be provoked. For some people, it might be their pride being criticized, being ridiculed. For some, it could be betrayal. 
the feeling of self-esteem, which emerges with great sorrow and pain in response to a friend ending a relationship with us. For some people, it is lust. Surrounded by potential partners, one has the decision to make whether to be faithful to one's own work with this creative energy itself, with exercises of transmutation, or to enter adultery. Ordeals are necessary. If the water does not boil at 100 degrees Celsius, then that which must be disintegrated will not be disintegrated. When you are in a situation of opposition, you can really see what you're made of. Without great trials, we cannot grow. Without temptation, without the possibility of failing, of making mistakes, we won't recognize that we are faulty. We won't see where we are mistaken, where we are weak, what we must change. Virtue is truly profound and strong when the roots dig deep into hell. When the roots are deep, then the tree can reach higher into heaven. Every ascent is preceded by a terrible and frightful descent. Every exaltation is preceded by a frightful and difficult humiliation. This is why Salman Vior stated the following in Tarot and Kabbalah. The results speak for themselves. If there are no temptations, there are no virtues. Virtues are more grandiose when temptations are stronger. What is important is not to fall into temptation. That is why we have to pray to our Father saying, Lead us not into temptation. Only through the struggle, the contrast, the temptation, and rigorous esoteric discipline can the flowers of virtue sprout from us. There our Father states, Lead us not into temptation. Everybody knows this. But who in us tries to lead us into temptation? Many religions, especially the Abrahamic traditions, but also in the East, you find many symbols related to demons, demonology, tempting figures, or the famous Satan, Lucifer. People do not understand in conventional religion that the origin of temptation is inside and that the figures we find represented amongst diverse religious traditions are in fact symbols of internal reality. This figure, Lucifer, frightens many people. They hear the name and they become scandalized, not understanding that Lucifer is a part of us. This term comes from Latin, luci ferus, carrier or bearer of light. What light is this? It is the light of Christ. The wisdom of direct perception, intuition, conscious understanding of the truth. This figure is a representation of of a part of our inner being. Salman Vihar mentions many times that we have a, a part of our inner being, our inner divinity, known as Lucifer. He is the light 
of Christ, but mixed within us, within impurity, within desire. He has a great burden, as you see represented by the chains that enwrap this figure. He is the fallen Prometheus who gives fire to man. Again, a beautiful symbol of this sexual trope. Temptation is fire. Triumph over temptation is light. That fire provides light and understanding. It is the creative sexual potential. When we take that energy and use it well for the spirit, we overcome temptation. But if we give in to desire, we fall. This figure, Lucifer, is our psychological trainer. He is responsible for giving us tests and ordeals and temptations to test whether or not we are serious. We can believe in, that we are spiritual, that we are compassionate, that we are kind, but the ordeals will teach us the reality. If we say, I am kind, we will be faced with situations in which our anger comes up. If we are chaste or think we are chaste, we will face situations of lust. If we are proud or think we are humble, we will be criticized. We will be laughed at, condemned, mocked to such an extent and degree that we will really see our true caliber. Therefore, this figure is something very enigmatic and cannot be brushed aside from vain superstition. The reality is that even in the book of Job, Yahavah, Jehovah, the divine, allowed Satan, Lucifer, to tempt Job. He was given permission. Tempt him and test him. But do not think that you can kill him. Let him suffer to the maximum. And see whether or not he is a righteous man. That's because this figure, Satan, or the Hebrew Shaitan, is the adversary. Shaitan, the adversary in Hebrew, is precisely that part of divinity that mixes with our own defects. He is imperfect, as you see here in this image. He is in a deformed state because we made him that way. Remember in the myth, whether from Catholicism or Christianity, that Lucifer was once a divine angel, a divine being. However, he fell. That represents us. We were once in a primordial, blissful, Edenic, perfect state. But we fell from our own actions, our own desires. And now it is the job of the intimate Lucifer, the psychological trainer, to put us in necessary and difficult situations so that we can really refine our character. We have to free him because he is enchained by our own lust. And therefore, he will show you and provide circumstances in your experience that are going to bring out the worst in you so that you can see them, you can comprehend them, and you can eliminate them. Therefore, we need temptation.
we need challenges. This figure also was represented in the Gnostic Gospel of Judas, of which we'll talk about in a future lecture. Judas Iscariot, a symbol of Lucifer, is the symbol of temptation. He represents how every initiate must enter their passion by facing contrariety, opposition, pain, so that we can eliminate what which must be eliminated. So let's examine our psychology in relation to the Kabbalah, because the path of redemption and temptation are represented here. There are different aspects of the soul that we must understand and know, so that we can be very clear about what in us must change and what actions we must take. We see here, in the bottom of this glyph, Malkut, which is Hebrew for kingdom. It is our physical body. Above that, we have Yesod, which is the vital creative sexual energy. This, in Hebrew, is known as Nefesh. Nefesh literally means blood, life force, vitality, appetite, soul, or that which breathes. It is related to the Yesod, the foundation in Hebrew, the creative sexual energy, because this energy this nefesh is what gives us life. It is the life force. We could not breathe physically if it weren't for nefesh. It is the circulation of our blood. It is the vitality of our soul. It is the energy that allows one to procreate, to live, to digest, to eat, to consume even allows us to think in this physical body. We would not be able to be here if it weren't for that impulse, this instinctive force, which for most of us is raw. It is unrefined. It is undefined. If you examine the life of any animal, like a cat or a dog, you see that they are driven by instinct. They have nefesh. They have animal soul. This level of consciousness relates to impulse, instinct, and desire. It is also the raw material by which we can create something divine and superior. But we have to take the animal and make it human. It's important to think and understand that nefesh amongst animals is in an elementary state. So while animals like cats and dogs are driven by instinct, they are not as animal as we are. This might seem very paradoxical or contrary, but it's the truth. Many animals are still developing and evolving. They're learning to obey the forces of nature. They don't have intellect. But our humanity, with our intellect with our justifications, with our reasoning. Take nefesh and make it more degenerated. Or we make it degenerated. Animals are therefore innocent, but because we have reason and we justify appetite, craving, anger, instinct, desire, we make ourselves sick. 
This is very evident if you examine our television shows, which are saturated with sarcasm, verbal violence, emotional and mental violence, physical violence, adultery, creative ways of killing one another, prostitution, slander, crime. This is not human. This is animal. This level of consciousness has no understanding or perception of God. And Nefesh, within us, is the desire for more. To accumulate, to acquire, whether it is social positions or money, status, a partner, a spouse. Nefesh is the instinctive drive to survive. It is self-preservation. It is base. It is basic. Nefesh is never satisfied. This is what tempts within us. So while we talk about defects and desires, animal tendencies, we label it with this term nefesh because it's our soul that is trapped within defects. And part of the inner Lucifer is mixed with that. In fact, Lucifer is precisely the sexual impulse, deeply related, integrated, saturated by defect, desire, within Yasod, Nefesh. We have to liberate soul. We have to make the animal human. We do so through training. Desire is never satisfied, which is why it states in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7, all the labor of Adam is for his mouth, and yet the nefesh is never filled. Who is Adam? It is us, the terrestrial personality or intellectual humanoid. Now, this reference to a mouth does not literally mean the physical mouth, although food and consumption is one element of nefesh. On a more psychological level, our mental mouth consumes, eats, masticates, chews, and consumes. We consume images, media, television, books, ideas, lectures. We may consume with our psychological mouth different impressions, uh, different images or media that are saturated with lust, with pride, with anger. And yet, our nefesh is never filled. It is this quality of mind which obscures our conscious potential to see the divine. Which is why we study Ruach. Ruach in Hebrew means breath, wind, spirit, the thinking emotional soul. It can relate to Chesed and the tree of life relating to the inner spirit. It could also relate to Tifereth, the human soul, as I mentioned earlier. This is the origin of ethical perception. Insight, guidance. Ruach is that part of us that is truly human. It is the willpower and the spiritual potential to act. It is what can perceive directly any psychological or material phenomenon and understand them. It is the ability to know right from wrong, good from bad, states of, or actions that produce happiness and those that create pain. It is ethical 
relating to the fact that there is a hierarchy, a divine law. That by following, we produce great abundance, prosperity of the spirit. And by ignoring that voice in our heart, that conscience that tells us this is right and this is wrong, we suffer the consequences. Now, this ruach, this soul that knows how to understand and to feel superior emotional states, the great happiness of the spirit is what has the potential to go up or go down. Which is why it states in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 21, Who knoweth the ruach of the sons of man that is going up on high, and the ruach of the behemah, that is going down below to the earth. Behemah means beast. It is nefesh. It is animality. But who knoweth the ruach, the soul that knows how to ascend, to go on high. However, ruach cannot do it alone. Ruach needs neshama. Neshama also means breath, wind, spirit. It relates to Geburah and Chokmah. Geburah means justice in Hebrew. Chokmah means wisdom. This is the discerning perception of divine reality, objectivity, and truth. Neshama is the state of consciousness in which we directly perceive God, whether it is through dreams, through meditation, through out-of-body experiences. This is a concrete experience in which we are talking directly with our inner spirit, our inner Christ. Neshama is the spiritual soul. Neshama, in some traditions, is represented as a divine woman, like in the opening of this lecture. Kundri, Sophia, the divine feminine. And Tiferet, our willpower, which is also related to Ruach, is the ability to act. This sphere, Tifereth, meaning beauty, is the beauty of the human soul that knows how to act for the will of God. He is sometimes depicted as, a, as masculine, as a knight, because he has a projective quality. Don't think of this in terms of literal physical genders or sexes. Man or woman. These are symbols. They represent abstract realities. Neshama has to redeem. She must descend down this tree of life into our physical body. She must help Ruach control Nefesh. She must aid our consciousness in understanding our intimate impulses and desires. This is why in the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 27, it states, The Neshama of Adam is a lamp of Yodhava. The Neshama of man, the human being, is a lamp of Yodhava, Jehovah. Why a lamp? A lamp has a case of crystal or glass, translucence, clarity. This is a symbol, a metaphor of the clarity of the soul. This is a state of consciousness in which you directly perceive divinity, but also you have insight into your deepest defects. You see the roots of them. You have great lucidity. 
insight, understanding of where they come from, how they exist, how they operate. Neshama must aid us. We work with Neshama precisely with our spiritual exercises, especially alchemy, meditation, transmutation. But there is more. We also have what is known as Chaya. Chaya in Hebrew means life. It is living thing, animal, wild person. That's because the power of life in us, the power of Bina in Hebrew, the intelligence of God, is unfortunately misused. Bina, the intelligence of the divine creative potential, enters down the tree of life and manifests even in Yasad. Our sexual creative power contains the intelligence of the divine. However, we must know how to use it intelligently and consciously. It cannot be done without knowledge. It has to be intentional. This force or this aspect of soul, Chaya, the Holy Spirit, the Divine Mother Kundalini, is related to Bina and Da'at. Da'at in Hebrew is the mysterious Sephirah located in the middle pillar of the Tree of Life. It means knowledge. It is alchemy. It is the union of man and woman, husband and wife, in order to create the spirit. By working in the perfect matrimony, a husband and wife can transform nefesh into nefesh chaya. This is the real power of the soul. When nefesh no longer is animal, but is human. This is why it states in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7, And Yot Chava Elohim formed Adam of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the Neshama Chaim, and man became a Nefesh Chaya. Who is Yot Chava Elohim? That is the Hebrew sacred name of God within Binah. Yot Chava is Jehovah, but Elohim is a profound, deep word. El in Hebrew means God. Eloah means goddess. Yod Mem, the masculine plural ending, means gods and goddesses. When husband and wife unite sexually but restrain nefesh, animality from the act, they can form the true Adam, the real human being, made from prime material, the dust of the ground. What is that dust of the ground? It is our physicality, our physical body, Malkut. And by breathing in the profound breath of life, by working with breathing exercises and mantra within the sexual act, we form Neshama Chaim, the spiritual living soul. And man, the human soul, became Nefesh Chaya, perfect, divine. This is the path of redemption. But more than that, there is a higher soul known as Yehida. Yehida means unit, unity, only one, solitary, unique. It is the perfection and unity of the highest divinity, reality, experience, and being. Yehida is listed in the Bible or mentioned in the book of Judges. 
chapter 11, verse 34, in which Yephthah, who was a Hebrew initiate, well, basically was entering battle against the Ammonites and begged divinity to give him victory for the Israelites. As a favor from divinity, if he would win the battle, he would offer the first thing that he saw when he returned home in Mitzpah, in Hebrew, the town of Gilead, in Gilead. Unfortunately, in the myth, it's implied that he sees his daughter emerge from his house. She appears not knowing of his vow, and it's implied that he sacrifices her for his victory. And this is the common interpretation for many people. Now, Yehida can mean only, and it's referenced in this scripture as only child. Yehida is the top trinity of the tree of life. It is Keter Chokmah Binah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ, the highest divinity, the unity of the light. It is the perfected, absolutely divine, and unified, integrated being. It is perfect. That unity is when the soul has really mastered itself and returned to divinity. When the soul is integrated with the divine, you have Yehida, the unity of the perfect matrimony between the soul and Christ. Now, even though some masters or individuals reach Yehida, they are tempted and they fall. You find that allegorized within the story of Yephthah in this book of Judges, chapter 11, verse 34. And Yephthah came to Mitzpah unto his house. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. And she was his only Yehida, his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. It's interesting that Mitzpah means tower in Hebrew. What does it mean that Yephthah came to his tower, unto his house? Our house, this house of the spirit, is the tree of life. And the tower is the peak, Keter. When we return up the tree of life of our spine to the crown chakra, Sahasrara, or the church of Laodicea in the book of Apocalypse, we achieve union with the truth. However, even masters who reach that level can fall, as hinted at by this verse, that Yephthah would sacrifice his Yehida, his only child. What does it mean to become a child, spiritually, esoterically speaking? If you study the writings of Samuel and Vior, this will be very clear. A child is a symbol of the perfected master. This individual has returned to the primordial innocence of Eden. Many of these masters greet us internally when we overcome ordeals, particularly through the trials of this path. They come in the form of cherubim, perfect angels, divine beings, like children. So, temptation exists even for high masters. This can confuse people. Why is it that if they have no lust or defects that they can still fall? They can become tempted by other things. Not lust or desire, but love. 
Beings who've reached those heights have transcended even our normal conceptions of love. They are terribly divine, beyond good and evil. But even some of them decide to sacrifice their own yehida, their only child. Because in the long term they know that once they fall, they might return with greater knowledge. But obviously that is a very dangerous path that is not recommended. And for most people anyways, we're nowhere near that. So that's not our problem. But it is a reality. There are angels who are tempted. They are tempted by love. They may fall in love with a person in the physical world, even though it is forbidden for them to engage in sexual union because they've already perfected their nefesh. They have nefesh haya. Their neshama, their spiritual soul, is fully unified with them. And therefore, they don't need sex to create. They already are perfected. And so it's unnecessary. But some masters, they choose to find a partner regardless. And therefore, they are tempted even at that level. Now, what we're going to do is explain some teachings related in a Gnostic gospel called the reality of the rulers. And I want to preface this series of verses by a teaching given by Samal and Vior. This is primarily because in the reality of the rulers, we find a interesting spin on the conventional story of Genesis, the Garden of Eden. He explains, Samal and Vior, that the reference in the Gnostic scriptures to archons or rulers has a very nuanced application to exegesis. We have to be very sophisticated, we could say, in our understanding of what these terms mean and how they apply to the Gnostic Gospels. Now, in the forthcoming Gospel we're going to read, The Reality of the Rulers, Jehovah is replaced, or better said, represented as the Archons. Anyone who studied the Gnostic Gospels have approached this topic or have read about this many times. That there are archons who are controlling, better said, the different aeons or realities of existence. And that they are trying to keep Sophia from achieving an enlightenment. It's important to understand that this symbol of the archon, which comes from archaeus, the arc, the arcanum, the law, these rulers, really represent two things. One, they can represent divine beings who are following the divine law. And in the inferior sense, there are archons who follow the law of hell. Or better said, the laws of hell. Because in the heavenly regions, there are simple, divine, less restrictions and laws. There is more freedom there. But in the hell realms, there is more complication, complexity, laws that one is subjected to. And therefore, it is a state of suffering. Here's what Salman Vera had to say about this in the Gnostic Bible, the Pisces Sophia unveiled. The violent judgments of the evil archons fall upon those who violate the law. The terms good and evil are very discussable. Something is good when it is suitable for us, and evil when it is not suitable for us. Evil rulers must be understood in esoteric form. No one can enjoy the violent judgments of the lords of karma. This is why they are symbolically denominated as evil archons. We need to be saved from the archons or violent rulers of darkness and also from the violent receivers of the outermost darkness. Who are these lords of karma? They are divine beings like Anubis. When you meet beings like Anubis in the eternal planes, you see their divinity. 
They are united with the law, with the superior truth, the glorian, with Christ. And because they are united with Christ, they are beyond good and evil. They see things that we do not. However, due to our limited mental states, our obscured perception of life, we don't see the full picture of things. Unfortunately, when bad things happen in our current experience, when situations go wrong, we like to blame God. And this is wrong. But this is the tendency of most people. And this explains why in the Gnostic Gospels, the Archons are depicted as evil beings in one sense. However, there will be some examples from the verses that we will read that relate to evil Archons, or better said, the Black Magicians. Because there are beings within the internal worlds, within dreams, who operate within hell. They rule the inferior dimensions. And in a way, they, believing to be just and good, inflict suffering. So, keeping this in mind, we have to be very delicate with our interpretations because in some cases, the Archons could be referring to divine beings, but in some cases, to demonic beings. There's a duality there. So, keep this in mind as we continue forward. So, we're going to open with a verse from the Reality of the Rulers. This is from another scripture, or a collection of Gnostic scriptures called the Gnostic Bible. We have here an image of Narcissus looking at his own reflection in the water. We chose this image because in relation to this verse, we see that all the time we are tempted by our self-image. How we think we see ourselves, our identity, our presentation, our mannerisms, our self, really keep us hypnotized. We tend to go through a daily psychological state or a series of states that may be defined by vanity. Whatever our self-image is, we tend to hold great fervor and attachment to that particular sense of self. We are tempted in many ways by our own self-image, as I said. This is paralleled in the reality of the rulers, in which the rulers are the archons. These archons in this excerpt are really representations of our own inner negativities, trying to create a self that is really impermanent, made from mud, from delusion. We tend to create and sustain an identity to keep us, perhaps, in some limited degree and practical utility, sane because we may have much suffering and confusion in our life. However, any attachment to self, and oftentimes our very perceptions of life, are limited by animal, bestial desires. Therefore, let us read this verse. The rulers laid plans and said, Come, let us create a human that will be soil from the earth. They model their creature as one holy of the earth. The rulers have bodies that are both female and male, and faces that are faces of beasts. Chayot. They took some soil from the earth and modeled their man after their body and after the image of God that had appeared to them in the waters. What are those waters? It is the sexual creative potential. How we see sex determines our identity. 
If we are filled with lust, then we will look at the sexual act with desire and lust. If we are pure and chaste, we will see the sacred sexual act as something divine. For most of us, our self is made from the earth, materialism, desire, relating to things of this world, malkut, the physical body. So these archons are female and male. They're really androgynous. They are qualities of both men and women, faces with the faces of beasts that are really representative of both sexes. Both men and women have innate animal instinctive sexual impulses and desires. And it is from these desires in which we fool ourselves, in which we are soiled, impure, tainted, and fooled. However, desire is futile. Desire cannot create anything positive, despite what our modern American or Western propaganda would have us believe. Oftentimes, we create and perform projects that don't have any fruit. We have a desire, we wish to attain something, to reach a goal. And yet, if it is driven by passion, we will not get the results we want. Especially if we are working in the spiritual path. Desire is actually contrary to our best efforts. One can learn to enact positive superior action, the will of the spirit, but without desire, without attachment. And the soul knows how to perform good works. Now, oftentimes, desire wishes to create things that do not really come to much great results. And this is allegorized within the reality of the rulers in relation to these three types of soul, Neshama, Nefesh, and Ruach especially. The spiritual soul, the animal soul, and the thinking and emotional soul. We have here an image of Typhon Baphomet, which in the eternal tarot of alchemy and Kabbalah represents Lucifer, the devil. In us, he is blackened because we are impure. And whenever we act from desire... We suffer. Whenever we conquer temptation and passion, enact superior will, we have spiritual potential and force. Sometimes this image of the devil is associated with Samael. But unfortunately, people do not have an education in, in these matters because when they hear of Samon Vior, the writer whose tradition we teach, they confuse Samael, the blind god, with the master Samael and Vior. The individual Samael and Vior was once a demon because he had fallen. However, he has risen through the spiritual work. Samael and Vior, the master, is perfected again. However, our inner Samael is very black. Our passion, our inner Lucifer, because Samael is the strength, the Martian energy of sexual power. If we control that power, we become divine. If we let it drive us, we are powerless, as represented in these verses. They said, Come, let us hold, lay hold of it, the new Adam, by means of the form that we have modeled, so that it may see its male partner, and we may seize it with the form that we have modeled, not understanding the partner of God, Neshama, because of their powerlessness. And Samael breathed into his face, and the man came to have a soul, Nefesh and Ruach, and remained on the ground for many days. But they could not make him rise because of their powerlessness. Like storm winds, they persisted in blowing. 
that they might try to capture that image which had appeared to them in the waters, and they did not know the identity of its power. This is a very beautiful teaching. Through the waters of sex, we can see God. We can see the image of the divine within us. But if we are lustful, no matter how much we breathe, we perform mantras, sacred sounds, even within alchemy, we will be powerless. We will not have neshama active. Sexual magic must be performed with consciousness and love. Neshama must be active. Neshama, the spiritual soul, the force of Geburah, the force of Samael, because Mars relates to Geburah and Samael. That power is what really sanctifies the alchemist couple. We can try to create the solar bodies working within a marriage to elevate the sexual creative energy to the mind and heart. But if we are lustful, if we do not understand the partner of God, if we do not have Neshama present within our minds, hearts, and bodies, it will be fruitless. Desire cannot perform alchemy. Only the soul can perform alchemy in remembrance of God. So, these evil archons, we can say our own defects and desires, try to create law and order within us, but they fail. They cannot lay hold of the divine self-image of the spirit, even though they try to model things in imitation of it with our own psychological states. We have to remove our own defects, which are images in the mind, so that there is only the translucence of the soul there. That is how we can really reflect divine power. When we do this, we receive the power of redemption. This is the Kundalini. Kundalini is the power of redemption. It is Neshama. Neshama is the feminine creative power of God. It is the fires of Mars that rise up in the spinal column. It is the positive spiritual potential of Samael, which raises the fallen initiates up to heaven. Samael is here not only represented as the master who came and taught in Mexico, but really the, our inner Samael, our own fires, our own strength. So, in the work, divinity has compassion for us. Divinity sees our suffering. And if we really like the apostles here who receive the fiery serpents upon their heads, the fires of Pentecost within the book of Acts, really aspire for the truth and maintain their chastity, but more importantly, their love. In combination, they can receive the favors of the divine. Neshama raises the fallen. Samael, from the Hebrew Samek, beginning his name, means support. It is the support that raises the initiates. And Geburah, Neshama, the spiritual soul, has that function. Here is what the reality of the rulers teaches. Now all these events came to pass by the will of the Father of all, Yehida. Afterward, the spirit, Neshama, saw the man of soul, Nefesh and Ruach, on the ground. The spirit, Neshama, came forth from the adamantine land. It descended and came to dwell in him. And that man became a living soul, Nefesh Haya. And the spirit, Neshama, called his name Adam, 
since he was found moving upon the ground. All of us, really in a spiritual sense, are crippled. We writhe on the ground if we do not have the spirit inside to make us standing upright to give us life. So, how are we tempted? This excerpt from The Reality of the Rulers references probably the most important aspect of the Genesiatic story in the Garden of Eden, eating from the Tree of Knowledge. This is a sexual symbol, obviously. What happens in a garden between a naked man and a naked woman? However, what's important to understand is the nature of that sexual act, which is dual. It could be positive, it could be negative. It could be divine, or it could be demonic. So, we have here an image of the tree of life transposed upon a human being. The Hebrew letters dat, dalet, ayin, tav, read from right to left, represent knowledge. This sphere is located in the throat, because from the throat, through mantra, through sacred sounds, we elevate the divine creative force and gain spiritual knowledge. It gives us insight and wisdom. This tree of knowledge is related to sex. And the tree of life relates to the spine. These two trees share the same roots. Our spinal column is nourished with fire through intentional knowledge and working with the sexual force. However, the dilemma comes of to eat or not to eat, to consume or to abstain from the sexual force. Better said, to indulge in the orgasm or to restrain the sexual force and to transform it. Here is what the reality of the rulers teaches. It's very interesting. The rulers took Adam and put him in the garden that he might cultivate and keep watch over it. They issued a command to him saying, From every tree in the garden you shall eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil don't eat nor touch it. For the day you eat from it, you will surely die. They said this to him, but they did not understand what they said. Rather, by the Father's will, they said this in a such a way that he might in fact eat, and that Adam might not regard them as would a man of an exclusively material nature. So this symbol represents the duality of sex. And the rulers obviously take the place of Jehovah Elohim. These archons, these rulers, said this to him, but they did not understand what they said. Rather, by the Father's will, they said this in such a way that he may, in fact, eat. Really, there are two ways to consume or work with the sexual energy. To eat it in the animal way, through orgasm, or to let the spirit consume the fires of sex so that from the mouth of divinity, he, the spirit, may be empowered. Even the rulers did not understand what they meant. Because even those archons who are self-realized to a level or degree of knowledge, even they don't know the full extent, the depth of knowledge that could be attained. Because there are levels of spiritual wisdom and knowledge, known as objective reasoning. There are levels amongst the archons, the divine hierarchies, the Elohim, the gods. And so they inspire the initiates to eat chastely. Let the spirit eat from that divine ambrosia 
the food and nectar of the gods. I believe even in Das Rheingold by Wagner, the opera within the tetralogy known as the Ring Cycle, you find that the gods eat the golden apples of Hesperides. These golden apples are precisely the sexual energy of Yesod, nourished by Freya Geburah, really the divine soul, Neshama. So, we can either eat chastely, without orgasm, or we consume as beasts. That is our choice. The question becomes, how do we raise the soul? We have an image here of William Blake with the creation of Eve. We know from the traditional story that Eve was taken from a rib from Adam's side and was raised up, was created. There are many layers of meaning of this myth. At a basic level, it can represent our ancient humanity known in the times of Lemuria, in which there existed the division of sexes. So there was a hermaphroditic individual symbolized by Adam, who became divided over the course of many millions of years into the to two sexes. So both male and female individuals were gradually formed over a prolonged period of time. And that's one symbol of this myth. There's an also another alchemical application to this teaching. Eve can represent Neshama, the feminine sexual power. Neshama, the spiritual soul, is represented by Eve, Chava, the mother of the living. Eve can represent our sexual organs, from which rises the spiritual soul, liberated from Nefesh. In the undeveloped human being, we have Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama undeveloped. Predominantly, we have Nefesh active, and Ruach very weak, and Neshama very distant. However, to the spiritual path, we extract Neshama, the spiritual soul, we liberate it, we free it, we purify it, we invoke it. So that through purifying Nefesh, by controlling Nefesh, with Ruach, with our conscience, we in turn become sacred, elevated. Here's what the reality of the rulers teaches. The rulers took counsel with one another and said, Come, let us cause a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. Now the deep sleep that they caused to fall on him and he slept is ignorance, lacking gnosis. They opened his side, which was like a living woman, Neshama. And they built up his side with some flesh in place of her. And Adam came to be only with soul, Nefesh and Ruach. The woman of spirit, Neshama, came to him and spoke with him, saying, Rise, Adam. And when he saw her, he said, It is you who have given me Chaya, life. You will be called Chava, Eve, mother of the living. For she is my mother. She is the physician and the woman, and she has given birth. That sleep which the archons put upon us obviously has to do with our own Defects making us unconscious and absurd. Our own ignorance is self-created by our own inner defects, which we take as law, authority, objective. However, by working with the two energetic currents of our spine, which are also represented by Adam and Eve, known in the East as Ida and Pingala, we extract Neshama. We raise the spiritual soul within us, the Kundalini. So, 
She is the one that raises the human consciousness to redemption. It is you who have given me life, she, he says. You will be called Chava, mother of the living. This also represents how Neshama can relate to the divine mother, Kundalini, the divine feminine. She is our mother. She is the physician, the one who heals us, and the one who gives birth. Because from the divine feminine, by the Kundalini sacred power of the divine, we are redeemed. We raise her up the spine. We elevate her. We sanctify her. We do so through the remembrance of Christ, as we see represented in this image. But the sacred feminine is dual. There is a positive and there is a negative, as we've been emphasizing again and again. We included here an image of the sixth arcanum of the tarot in decision. We see an initiate in a pool of water facing to his left towards the whore. That is his own lust, his own desires, his own cravings, his own nefesh. And you see that an archon, a hierarch of the law, above in the top third of the card, is aiming an arrow to slay her. Because she breaks the divine law. However, the initiate must turn to his right towards Neshama, the divine feminine, our divine mother. In one other sense, it can be our divine soul. So there's a duality to really that potential. Sacred above, demonic below. And the archons of the Black Lodge obviously pursue that image of the divine. They are empowered by sexual force, like any initiate, but they channel it through their lust and they seek to satisfy their desires. Our own defects also seek to gratify themselves through their stealing of the sacred potential. This is why in the reality of the rulers, it's stated, the authorities came up to their Adam. When they saw his female partner speaking with him, they became very excited and enamored of her. They said to one another, come, let us sow our seed in her. And they pursued her. And she laughed at them for their foolishness and blindness. In their clutches she became a tree and left before them her shadowy reflection resembling herself. And def they defiled it foully. And they defiled the seal of her voice so that by the form they had modeled, together with their own image, they made themselves liable to condemnation. Very deep symbol. Obviously the divine feminine, when channeled through lust, becomes passion, desire, prostitution. And so our own defects love the sensations of lust, love that type of sensation or experience. But they are blind. They cannot see reality. Desire never sees reality. Only the soul. She becomes a tree, and her shadow is what they copulate with because the tree of life is the tree of being. Our true, human, divine, and complete potential. However, the shadow of the tree of life is Klipot, or in the Quran, known as the tree of Zakum, the tree of pain, the infernal worlds. They defile the seal of her voice because, really, the voice is Da'at, sexual knowledge. Without the voice, without the verb, we do not create anything sacred in the sexual act. We must transform with the creative verb, even if but mentally. And so they entered damnation. So, what is the wisdom of the serpent? It is dual. We find that Neshama has a dual purpose. 
really it's the spiritual manifestation of the spirit and manifests within the sexual energy when we are conscious. This is why in the reality of the rulers, it teaches that Neshama, the female spiritual presence, appears in the form of a snake, the serpent that tempts. However, we'll find that from this verse that the serpent tries to instruct in an enigmatic way. And if we read between the lines, we'll be able to interpret and see that there are two ways to eat from the tree of knowledge, from sex itself, metaphorically, alchemically speaking. Here's what the reality rulers teaches. Then the female spiritual presence, Neshama, came in the form of the snake, the instructor, and taught at them, saying, What did he say to you? Was it from every tree in the garden you shall eat, but not from the tree, but from the tree of recognizing evil and good do not eat? The woman of flesh said, This is really our sexual organs. Not only did he say, Don't eat, but even don't touch it. For the day you eat from it, you will surely die. That death is spiritual. It is when we become disconnected from divinity through lust and animality. The female spiritual presence, Neshama, emerges in the sexual act when we are conscious. It is the instructor which teaches us in the alchemical moment how to proceed. However, does the woman of flesh obey? We may know these principles, but does our body cooperate with the act? That is the great question. We have to train ourselves. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge, meaning don't orgasm. Don't touch it, the sexual act with lust, such as through masturbation. For the day you eat from it, you will die. You will be disconnected from the truth. The snake, the instructor said, It is not the case that you will surely die. For out of jealousy he said this to you. Rather your eyes will open and you will be like God's recognizing good and evil, or evil and good. And the female instructing power was taken away from the snake, and she left it behind, merely a thing of the earth. Another deep symbol. In the astral plane, divinity can take on concrete forms to teach us something. And often they will abandon those forms once the teaching or instruction has been given within dreams. So the snake here is embodied by the spirit, the spiritual soul, to teach something alchemical to the disciple. It is not the case that you will die. Meaning, if you are chaste in the sexual act, you will not die. And out of jealousy, he said this to you. Meaning, in a sense, by working in this path, we will acquire a level of knowledge. And perhaps even superior to that of many archons, especially if we have more egos to work with, defects, desires that we must eliminate, really, from the greatest temptations arise the greatest virtues, as we said earlier. And through chastity, our eyes spiritually will be open and be like gods, recognizing evil and good. But the female instructing power was taken away from the snake, meaning if the spiritual soul abandons the sexual act, if we're not remembering God in the sexual act, then really the sexual act will be a thing of the earth. This is really when the moment of temptation comes. So, as we know from the biblical story, and the woman of flesh took from the tree and ate, and she gave to her husband as well as herself, and those beings who possessed only a soul, Nefesh and Ruach, ate, and their imperfection became apparent in their lack of knowledge. They recognized that they were naked of the spiritual, Neshama, and they took fig leaves and bound them around themselves. 
Then the chief ruler came and he said, Adam, where are you? For he did not understand what had happened. Adam said, I heard your voice and was afraid because I was naked and I hid. So, it's a beautiful teaching about alchemy, the perfect matrimony. If we are not remembering God and if we eat with desire, then the spiritual leaves us. We become naked, abandoned. And obviously the fig leaves are a symbol of sexuality because the fig tree has many symbolic applications in other scriptures and relate to the, relates to the tree of knowledge. So if the spiritual leaves the sexual act, then one is spiritually destitute. This is why the chief ruler or the archons of the law of karma come to us and say, where are you? Really? What are we doing? And Adam said, I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was naked. Because out of shame, that is how we create more desire, more egotism, more pain. That is the path of temptation. However, by remembering Neshama, the spiritual within the act, by being conscious of God with our partner, we become divine. So, I know we've talked for quite a long time, um, but we see here we have some references, some resources that you can rely on or study to go deeper into these topics, especially the basics of Kabbalah and alchemy. Really, the way we've been interpreting these scriptures has been based on these two books. Study them deeply. They'll help you, give you a basis for understanding the Gnostic Gospels themselves and for applying the practice of alchemy in your own work if you're married. But obviously, if you're single, you can work with the creative energies at your level. So at this time, I invite you to ask questions. We have a question. What to do if we continue to fail or fall for the same temptation? Meditate. Meditate on the egos or defects that make you fall, that make you fail. There is no other way. When we comprehend an ego or a defect, a desire, in its fundamental root, we can pray for its elimination. And in that way, we can eliminate it completely. Therefore, when the temptations arise again, we're no longer tempted. We have no inclination to go along with the situation. We're just conscious of God. Obviously, this occurs in levels and it takes a lot of meditation to go deep into certain defects because some defects are very deep. Some defects require a lot of work, even more work than others because there are the branches from the tree of Zakum and there are roots which go deep into hell. And we have to be very patient when we go into those deep roots because those are where the worst temptations exist. So be patient. Meditate, comprehend, and comprehend day by day what you can so that you make progress. We have a question. Can you elaborate some of the symbols discussed within the section of the Conjuration of the Seven relating to Adam and Eve? Yes, it does tie very beautifully into this lecture too because as we state in the Conjuration of the Seven, by the divine and human name of El Shaddai, by the sign of the pentagram which I hold in my right hand, in the name of the angel Anael, by the power of Adam and Eve, who are Yod Chava, be gone, Lilith, let us rest in peace, Nahema. 
So who is this Shaddai El Chai? It is the Almighty Living God. That is the sacred name of divinity in the tree of life within Yesod. It is the power of divinity. So the Almighty Living God, El Shaddai, is a sexual symbol. Shaddai means demon. It can also mean force or strength of God. Chaya, life. Really, uh, Shaddai is the term used for field within the book of Genesis. And the serpent, the neshama, the spiritual potential of creative power, is in the Garden of Eden or the field of the beasts. The serpent dwells within Shaddah. It is the power of Shaddai, the power of the Almighty. It's important to remember, too, that these names are very sacred. When we pronounce them, if you pronounce the name Shaddai el Chai in the astral plane, you will see and hear thunder and lightning. It is the expression of the force of Christ. And when we invoke that power, we are asking divinity, basically, descend into us by the divine and human name of El Shaddai, by the sign of the pentagram, which I hold in my right hand. The pentagram, we hold up the symbol of our right hand, the pinky and ring finger closed, the middle finger, index finger, and thumb extended. The pentagram represents the perfect human being. That perfect human being really is what we aspire to. It's when our mind governs sex and not the other way around. So when we are chaste, when we have spiritual ruach, cognition, governing nefesh within sex, the inverted pentagram is when nefesh is governing ruach. That's when really the two polarities of Adam and Eve, od and obd, to use other Hebrew terms, the solar and lunar currents are really misdirected, especially the lunar force of Eve, because we have those two energetic currents that rise up our spine in the form of the caduceus of Mercury, the Holy Eight. That's where the sexual energy rises through in the vital body to reach the mind and then the heart. Now, Eve can represent really the lunar energetic feminine currents of our spine, which when they're filled with lust, they are sent downward and form the tail of demons, Satan, the tail of the negative serpent, known as Kundabuffer in the writings of Gurdjieff, but also Samal and Vior. And also in the Conjuration of the Seven, in the name of the angel Anael, by the power of Adam and Eve, who are Yotchava, begone Lilith, let us rest in peace, Nachema. Anael means the grace of God, Hana El in Hebrew. It's an angel, but also represents the grace of divinity shows us when we are chaste. When Adam and Eve, when husband and wife, the couple, are really practicing the grace of God by transforming sex into something pure. And in the name of Adam and Eve, be gone, Lilith, let us rest in peace, Nahema. Lilith and Nahema are demons. They're related to lust. Lilith is more extreme relating to uh, really perversions against nature. And Nahema relates to adultery and passion. So we perform that prayer because we wish to reject lust from the sexual act. Especially when you're married, you work with this conjuration to really prepare your home, your space for the perfect matrimony. So that is the power of Adam and Eve, really. The grace of God, Hanael, or Anael, 
is really Neshama, the spiritual soul that graces us when we remember her. Very deep. There's a lot, obviously there will be many more nuances and interpretations there, but that's what comes to the top of my head. We have a question. Does going along with the flow of egos increase the possibility of a sexual fall? Yes. Really, I mean, obviously, the egos of lust or desires increase the possibility of a sexual fall. If you're thinking lustful thoughts and engaging with lustful emotions, and even in your mind indulging in sexual fantasy, that will translate into your dreams. Especially, this is why people have nocturnal pollutions, because there's lustful elements that are manifesting in the daytime that the disciple is not aware of. The solution is to observe them in action and to meditate, comprehend those egos. If we just go along with the flow of our mind, whenever, whatever it presents to us, whether it's anger or passion or lust, obviously that increases the likelihood of failing. Really, we have to have no mercy for our own ego. We have to be very militant, but also patient because this is not easy. It's not easy to train Nefesh into a spiritual soul, into Ruach or Neshama. If you identify with any ego, obviously you make yourself more vulnerable to failure because an incorrect psychological state, according to Salman Vior in the Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, can is enough, or any, really any insignificant moment in which we fail to remember ourselves is enough to really bring us disgrace. So we have to be very conscious and vigilant all the time. So also be patient because, especially if our body is used to fornication, it takes a long time to retrain it. But it can be done. But just don't go along with the mind. Observe it. Be mindful of it. Understand it. We have a question. How would one meditate on lust without indulging in it? What is the best way to meditate on lust? I'd say remember chastity. You won't understand lust if you don't understand the virtue that can come from it. We have to look not only look at the mud, but we have to look at the lotus that emerges from it. Really in the process of comprehension, we start to see a duality. We see a duality in the sense that from passion, by comprehending it and seeing it for what it is, we can understand that there is a truth within it, that there's something trapped within that desire. There's something really profound and beautiful that is enmeshed within that element. When you're meditating on lust, the challenge becomes when you're imagining a scene in which an ego acted or emerged in your mind, you have to be able to visualize it with enough stability so that you don't get identified. Now, for some people, it can be very difficult, especially in the beginning, when desire and loss is very big, especially if we've been feeding that element for many years and even many lifetimes. It's going to be very difficult to first uh, hold in one's imagination the scene of what happened in a day in which lust was provoked, but more importantly to concentrate on it with enough stability that we don't get distracted by the mind. Because what happens is that lust will fight analysis. It tries to evade. It's a serpent. It slithers out of the way. It moves and it's flexible. It's very quick. And you have to be very fast, consciously, to catch it. Observe it. If you find that you're imagining a scene in which really lust acted or you're trying to understand an ego, 
Train enough in your concentration so that you can focus on one thing without forgetting. But also train your imagination so that you can see objectively what's there without identifying with it. If you find that it's too much, your lust is making you fantasize and you're starting to daydream, take a break, pause, take a walk, create some art, do something creative. If you find that lust is really bothering you and it's very difficult to comprehend, it can be good to take a break, try to relax, especially relax your mind because any agitation will make things unclear. And come back after you've performed a a conscious and creative or beautiful activity, such as sculpture or painting or art, walking. You can do some transmutation exercises, pranayama, mantras, runes are very good for that. It's good to have that energy present so that when you do sit to meditate, that you have more integration of your perception. You're more stable. You're more relaxed. You're able to calmly recall the image without getting identified. You have more energy by which to perceive it. You have more strength in your consciousness. It's a delicate skill. This is really the difference between an angel and a demon, really. Knowing good from evil and evil from good. You have to be able to acclimate yourself to recalling the image, but if you find that lust has taken over, look at the lust. Turn your attention to that desire that wants to fantasize. Observe it. Look at it. It's good to perform some psychological judo on that element if it's really bothering you. It's preventing you from really seeing clearly what's there. You have to be flexible in your attention. So it could be good, redirect yourself in that way. Or take a break if you need to, if it's too much. But eventually train yourself, sit through it, even if it's difficult and painful. But when you comprehend the lust itself, when you can look at that image or see your own lust and desire and understand it, you start to free yourself more and more from it. So little by little, it disintegrates. It gets weaker. It gets more, it loses volume, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, basically, you want to have enough concentration to uh, focus on that element. But you have to watch yourself, watch your desires, see what they're doing. If you start to drift into fantasy, redirect yourself And I believe another element from Tibetan Buddhism too, which focuses on impermanence. If you see a lustful image, you can really reflect on the nature of that element or that image. If it's of a beautiful person, you can imagine it as a corpse. Obviously, this lustful body or this body in which one has lust for or desire for is going to die. Does one have attraction or lust for a skeleton? dead organs, for rotting flesh. You can train yourself to bring up that image if your lust is very intense. And then balance that. Look at that. That's the objective reality of this person one is lusting after. And when you see that, you can transform the impression. You can understand that it's uh, really the attachment or desire is impermanent. Really uh, is not real. Yes. So you were saying, I didn't mean to say indulge, but identify. It is hard for me not to identify. And I just end up avoiding meditation on lust because it is too tricky. Lust is very intense for me. It is a really big struggle. Yes, it is very difficult. And I understand what you mean. To identify is to, again, giving it your energy. But be patient. Do small meditations, build up to it. And obviously, don't avoid in the long term because 
It's not good not to know what we are. But patient. Hack away at it. Little by little. If you're comprehending lust in the day, if you're observing yourself and uh, reflecting on the nature of chastity, you will have a better sense of what is real and what is true. That can help diffuse lust quite a lot. That's another method too, besides the transformation of impressions. Reflect and remember your divine mother. Reflect on her, what she is like, her beauty. Do we really want to violate the most sacred and divine with our thoughts, with our words, with our emotional states, with our impulses? So we remember more what the Divine Mother is within us. We are more inclined to resist, or better said, comprehend lust and remove it from our lives. So I recommend you can even meditate on the Divine Mother, especially a sacred image. Reflect on her beauty. Because she is what is real. She is Neshama. She's also Haya, the life of the Divine. We have a great question. How and why did Kundri help the knighthood despite her being under the control of Klingzor within Wagner's opera Parsifal? For those who have not seen the opera, it's by Richard Wagner. Probably one of the greatest works of art ever created. It really depicts, depicts the drama of temptation within the Garden of Eden in a symbolic sense, the path of redemption. Klingzor represents, he's a, basically a black magician who steals the lance of Longinus from the Knights of the Grail. He wounds the side of their head priest, Amfortas, who is in pain and trying to be healed. Kundri is the temptress who originally tempted uh, Amfortas, the priest, the main knight, and made him fall. However, she serves the knighthood with great reverence and respect. Because that power of Kundri, the divine soul, is dual. Sophia, who wants to re return to divinity, wishes to serve the Knights of the Holy Grail, the Gnostic Church, with fidelity, because she understands the value of this work, this path. However, she is still under the control of Klingzor, because like any one of us, as much as we love Gnosis and the teaching, and they practice it with a lot of faith and love, we have a lot of lust. We have a lot of negative elements and egos that belong to the Black Lodge, our own defects. Really connects us with hell. So we're, we're mixed. We're Hasanamusin. We're dual. We want to go to heaven, but we're stuck in hell. And as much as we try and fight against our defects, we do have lust. And we, we lose battles because it's very difficult. But uh, yeah, I mean, I recommend if those who have not seen the opera that you watch it. Watch it and then, or you can read the book by Salmon Vior and then also watch the opera too. Very powerful. So we have a question. Are there more meanings to the fire symbol, such as depicted in the book Christ and the Virgin? Fire is a symbol of Christ. The fire of life. The fire of being. Obviously fire has dual potential. It can give fire, heat, and life. can cook our food. can give us sustenance. Or it can burn us. How the fire is used is dependent on us. Do we act with desire and ego? Are we tempted by our own 
desires to use the fire in the wrong way or do we channel it through the spine as neshama the holy ghost through chastity that's the difference so that's the duality of fire fire can give life fire can destroy it is shiva shakti the creative destructive potential of the holy ghost those are the two paths temptation and redemption the fire can destroy or it can purify our psychological house and give us light. Depends on us. Yeah, basically, um, the fire is the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's the fire of illumination. It can give us life, spiritually speaking. We have a question. What is the meaning of the translation of Eve as farm? And what is the relationship between Adam and Eve after the separation? My initial assumption is that when you think of a farm, you think of crops, wheat, vegetation, the field, shadeh, shadai. From Eve, really, if we cultivate the earth, our physical body, through the sexual transmutation of our energies, really, we become farmers of the spirit. I believe there's even an arcanum of the, really the minor arcana within the tarot, called the plower, cultivation of the earth. Really, with alchemy, we're plowing the earth to plant the seed of the soul, the seed of the spirit. And also, what is the relationship between Adam and Eve after their separation? In one sense, Adam and Eve were the ancient humanity of Lemuria, where they divide into male and female sexes. Therefore, when the two sexes separated in that time, it was for the purpose of helping to amplify or magnify the sexual force. So, in the beginning... Sexual cooperation didn't exist because they were hermaphroditic beings. But in order to spiritually develop at a higher octave, there had to be a separation so that by coming together again, joining in marital union, the two forces, both male and female, masculine and feminine, man and woman, could join together to create something superior. So that was a process in which humanity developed at that time through evolution so that in a later time, humanity could enter higher stages of knowledge and being. So, at this point, I know we're kind of running out of time. Uh, we're going to conclude. I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.